Why are these competitors meeting together and coming to some kind of an agreement? These guys dominated most of the wealth of the world. And here they were uh, putting together a piece of legislation. And some historians have referred to that as the dawning of the age of the cartel, a banking cartel. Now, when you no. say most of the wealth in the world, how much money are you talking about? Yeah, I have no idea, but it's, it's unimaginable. So what's been the positive impact and the negative impact? I cannot think of any positive any, impact. Any, none. It's a parasite. It's a fraud. It's based on a lie. They have to talk endlessly about stabilizing the economy and making jobs and preserving the purchase power of the dollar and all these good things. That's just for cover. All they're concerned about is what is best for the banks. So then that means the Federal Reserve, all it did is it became an insurance policy to prevent banks from going out of business. It was not real insurance at all. It was a political scheme. The Federal Reserve, which is supposed to be the guardian to prevent all of this stuff, gets a, a failing mark on its report card. So how have the American people paid a price for the 1913 Federal Reserve Act? This idea of money out of nothing. There's been no country that's ever survived. It's always collapsed economically. Is it media? Is it politicians? Is it China? What is the biggest threat today that we're facing? As long as the humans in this planet can be programmed and passively accept a condition where they accept authority without question, there is no hope for mankind. My guest today is G. Edward Griffin, somebody that you uh, may not know a lot about, but the people in the business world, the money world, the world that follows capitalism, maybe some of the people that follow the red pill, the people that take the red pill. He wrote a book, Creature from Jekyll Island. If you've never read this book, it's a second look at the Federal Reserve. This book has sold nearly a million copies. He's written 48 books, done documentaries. He was in the military before, and uh, he's someone that can give you a different perspective on the words of capitalism, socialism, and the current state of things in America that can, uh, that can get you to think a little bit. So I'd like you to watch today's interview from an open mind. With that being said, G. Edward Griffin, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. And I have, to, I have to give this disclaimer to everybody so they're not confused that you are not Anthony Hopkins' brother. You guys are not related, yes or no. We just have, everybody needs to know that. No, we're not related. No. Okay. All right. That's good. So now that we have said that aside, let's get right into it. Look, I got a lot of things I'd like to speak to you about. Obviously, things are weird right now. Economy's weird right now. You know, the pandemic's changed the game. Protesting, riots, vaccine, election. A lot of things are going on. But I'd like to kind of go a little bit uh, back to you writing this book because we've had a lot of guests on that uh, I ask about the Federal Reserve. Why was it started? How was it started? And, you know, there's a lot of different stories to it. And I've had a Daniel DiMartino Booth, who's an economist. She has a complete different spin on what she thinks about the Federal Reserve and Jekyll Island. And Nomi Prince, who's also an economist, former Goldman Sachs, uh, a member of Goldman Sachs, she tells the story very similar to the way you tell it. But I want to hear it from you. You know, you wrote this book to highlight and uh, give people a different perspective of how the Federal Reserve was started. So number one, how was it started? What was the outcome? Who was involved? Why did it happen? Okay. Yeah, I love that. Starting from the beginning. Of course, that's not really the beginning because the Federal Reserve is an extension of a, of, of a scheme of banking that was, uh, you know, generated in Europe a hundred or a couple hundred years prior to this. But the action starts as far as we are concerned uh, in America in the year 1910, 
Federal Reserve Act was passed into law in 1913, but the action was going on before that. And uh, basically what, what we're talking about here is that at that period of history, the turn of that last century, there was a lot of um, concern among the American people about banking. They were angry at the banks. The banks were failing. They weren't keeping their promises to guard the deposits that people had. They thought their deposits were being held in the vault, a silly assumption, when in fact all the money was being loaned out. Yet the banks were saying, yeah, it's a demand deposit. You give us the money. You can have it anytime you want it. Just come and ask for it. And that, that worked only for about 7% of the deposits. The rest of them were all loaned out. And so when people started to come and ask for the deposits, it didn't take long before those lines exceeded 7% and the banks had to close their doors. Some of them went bankrupt. People lost their savings. It, it crushed the economy a couple of times. And people were concerned and they were writing to their congressmen and they were saying, we want, uh, we want a law to control these big bad bankers on Wall Street in New York. So the cry was out and the alarm was out and the uh, politicians, you know, they always listen to their <laughs> to their constituents. They listen to the ones that send checks with their letters better than the ones that don't. But anyway, they listen. And so they decided they were going to pass a law to control the banks in America. So this is where the story begins in my book on Jekyll Island. What the heck is that all about? It turns out that the top bankers decided they weren't going to wait around for Congress to come up with a law to control their industry. They decided, why should we wait around and see what happens and how we're going to deal with it? We will create the law. We will be in the lead of calling for reform, but we must not let the world know that we are doing it. So it was necessary to lay their initial plans under conditions of considerable secrecy. And so they decided not to do it in Washington, D.C. They decided to meet with each other, and they all got on uh, a private railroad car of Senator Aldridge, who was the senator in charge of drafting this new legislation. He was uh, the chairman of the National Monetary Commission, I think it was called. And he had a private, very wealthy guy. He was related in many ways, financially and in bloodline, to a lot of the bankers. So he had a private railroad car, and he invited all his banker buddies uh, that he was familiar with to get on that train, and they took a a two-night-and-a-day trip south to, to Jekyll Island, Georgia. And there they crossed from uh, Brunswick, Georgia. They crossed the Inland Straits, took a ferry boat across. There was a bridge there now, but then they had to take a ferry boat. And the, the island was owned by these bankers and some of the great industrialists that they were friends. It was a private resort island, and uh, it was called the Jekyll Island Club. And they had a beautiful clubhouse there, which is still there, by the way. And I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. And so they went there and they sat around a table for a whole week and they hammered out the deal that they were going to draft the reform bill that the public was clamoring for. But they had to do this in secret because if the wind had gotten a whiff, if it had been on the wind and people knew that the bankers were drafting this bill, of course, the cat would have been out of the bag mm. and nobody would have taken it seriously. So it was a, it was a great uh, task to keep it secret. Uh, when I looked at that, I decided there are very few wars of history that were planned under greater secrecy than that. I won't bore you with the details, but some of the details are interesting, is that um, they decided to go to the railroad station in New Jersey. One by one, the instructions were don't be seen together, don't have dinner together, and to avoid newspapers at all costs. Uh, in those days, the newspaper reporters used to hang out at that station because that was the main uh, way in and out of New York was through the railroad station there. 
And so they would wait for a celebrity or a politician to show up and they grab a picture and get an interview. And so they were worried about that. And that's why they didn't want to be seen together. One of the uh, one of these guys was a banker, uh, carried a shotgun in a big black case, kind of conspicuous. And um, he was prepared to, um, if he had been stopped and asked, where's he going? He would say, well, I'm going on a duck hunting trip. And it was funny because we find out later from his children who commented on this and gave testimony on it and his biographer who all said that he never fired a, a shotgun or any kind of a gun in his wow. life. Yeah. He borrowed, he borrowed that shotgun from a friend just for, he could use that as an excuse. They didn't want anybody to know that they were going being, you know, together on this kind of a meeting because it would raise questions. Even when they got on board the train, uh, they were instructed when talking to each other in the privacy of this car to address each other by last, I mean, by first names only, not their last names. It, and I thought when I read that, oh, this is nonsense. Why would they do that? And then one of them wrote in his memoirs years later that, yes, they did do that. And he said, the reason we did it is we didn't want the servants on board the train to know who we all were. Mm. So they addressed each other by first names and, um, Two of them uh, even addressed, created false first names. They called each other Orville and and you know uh, and Wright, the two Wright brothers, uh, because they said they wow. were always right. Yeah, it was kind of a joke, kind of a joke. So anyway, they got there. Everything was secret. They had dismissed the usual employees on the island. They had all part-time employees. Everything was done so that the world would never know that such a meeting took place. And when I read that, I thought, okay. When something is done in secret, there's usually something to hide. But what is it that they were trying to hide? Well, it didn't take long to figure it out. First of all, they were trying to hide the fact that this legislation for banking reform was being written by the banks themselves who were causing the problem. Secondly, uh, they wanted to um, they wanted to present it in such a way that nobody would understand that what they were forming was a cartel. It had to look like it was legislation. But if anybody knew that they who were competitors, these, these were the tops of various banks who were competing with each other. And they had ties, close ties with international banks who often would compete with each other for big deals, big loans and so forth. And it would raise questions to say, why are these competitors meeting together and coming to some kind of an agreement? And it wouldn't take long before you could figure out that after all, this was the turn of the last century. And some historians have referred to that as the dawning of the age of the cartel. Well, this is exactly what they were creating. It was not a government agency they were creating. They were creating a, a cartel, no different than a banana cartel, an oil cartel. It just happened to be a banking cartel. So all of these things had to be concealed from the public, which is why they went to Jekyll Island. So when they got it all done, they went back to Washington, D.C., of course. Senator Aldridge took this cartel agreement. And figuratively speaking, he took an eraser and erased the name cartel agreement from the top of it. And for political purposes, it became now known as the Federal Reserve Act. It became a bill. So the know-nothing congressmen and senators really didn't understand what was going on, except they thought, well, this was legislation that's going to make me look good because I can say I'm all for banking reform. And so they voted for it thinking it was really banking reform. And then when you look at the nature of it, it was all about how to preserve the advantages that the banks had and how they could continue to dominate 
the whole financial industry without new competition coming in and displacing their strong position. And they could do it in the name of serving the people. Not only that, there was a bonus thrown on top of it. They had gone there just primarily just to control their own industry so that nobody could tinker with their, their deals. But before they walked out of, the, of this whole thing, they had gotten the power to create the nation's money supply. That was not part of the original plan. It's hard to figure out who thought of that, but it would have been absurd to say that here's a nation, the United States, which like all nations had its sovereign right to issue its own money, would give up that right and give it to the private banks and say, okay, we're not going to issue United States money. We'll let the private banks issue United States money. And nobody will notice that there was a switch because it'll still say United States of America on top of the bills. But instead of saying United States of America treasury note, now it says United States of America federal reserve system. So they got everything they wanted plus a bonus, which was to capture control of the ability to issue money on behalf of the United States. So that is the short version of what happened and how it happened. Nobody understood it. It was complicated. They concealed it in very uh, uh, academic type language. They had a lot of college professors talking about it, you know, ratios of this and, and funny words that nobody ever heard of. And, but it was really one of the greatest crimes of all history. That's what I discovered when I started to read about it. And so I decided to tell the story, not as a, like a, like a textbook on money and banking, but as the story of a crime, which it was. So instead of talking about the details of banking, I talked about the crime, who did it, why they did it, how they did it, and where they buried the body, and what that means to us. So, you know, when, when um, Sir G, when, when uh, somebody listens to that, if you're comfortable with me calling you Mr. G, is that okay with you? Well, that's absolutely okay. Okay. Yes. So, so, you know, when I listen to your story and you're going through this, so on one end, it's very convincing. And I said, okay, this is great. I cannot believe this took place. These guys are getting together. On the other end, if I'm a skeptic and some people who are not fans of yours, they may say, well, what are your sources? How did you get all this research to get all this data? Where did that come from? Why should somebody sit here and say, well, he's telling the truth. He's not, you know, you know, internet research. What kind of research were you getting? Did you meet these folks? Did you interview their assistant? Where did you get your information from? Yeah, that's a very important uh, issue because when I started down this uh, track, I understood I was dealing with information that really I had never heard about before. And it was almost unbelievable, even though I'm looking at the documents. I'm thinking, is this true? It can't be true. And I knew that uh, I knew that it was true, but I knew that people would be questioning just like you suggested. So from the beginning, I decided that I wouldn't put anything in there unless I could document it. Now, document it how? from original sources. In other words, everything I have said a moment ago and everything in the bloody book is documented from references that are written by the people themselves who participated in this crime. I'm talking about their own private letters, their own documents, their own books, uh, their own family talking about it. This is original sources. None of it, none of it comes from critics of the Federal Reserve. Almost every one of them are either neutral about it or very fond of the Federal Reserve system. And uh, so, I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, sometimes I think that I have too many footnotes in my book. I've got just hundreds, if not thousands of footnotes. I, I, I mean, I see. Them. I just want to make sure the viewer gets that as well, you know, to, to know yeah. that where the content came from. 
I did not want to have to to have a, you know, stand in front of an audience and blush and say, "Well, I don't know where I got that." I mean, somebody said so. That was not going to work. So, uh, yeah, it all comes from the sources of the people themselves who were putting this uh, this creature together. Got it. And and who were they? I might add on that. They were, very, they were very proud of what they were doing. They thought that it was a great thing. Their mentality appears to be that, uh, yeah, we understand that this is something that the average person sh- probably shouldn't know about because they might be alarmed if they thought that there was that much power in our hands. But after all, it's necessary because they're too stupid to understand how great a system we're p- putting together is for them. It's for their own good, you understand. Mm. It was kind of their mentality. So they, I think, in their own mine thought that everything they were doing was for the betterment of mankind. And the fact that it happened to make them trillionaires didn't, well, that wasn't their motive, of course, you know. For for some people that don't know these individuals that were involved in this meeting, who were the people actually involved in the meeting at Jekyll Island? Yeah, that's important to know that. Uh, these are all the heads of the of the biggest banks in America with uh, connections to the biggest banks in the world uh, overseas. And uh, and it's remember, these are formerly competitors and they're coming together. I'd like to read their names to you. Uh, the first one I've already mentioned was Nelson Aldridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the head of the uh, uh, the commission that put the whole thing together. The uh, He was chairman of the National Monetary Commission, they called it. But the interesting thing is he was also a business associate of J.P. Morgan, and he was the father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller Jr. So, you know, that was his connection. And uh, Abraham Piat Andrew was the second guy there. He was the assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury. But uh, that doesn't tell you enough because even though he was an official of the government, his bank, his, his background was banking. If you, maybe people have not noticed, but most of the secretaries of the Treasury are really bankers, aren't they? That's where they come from, the banking field. Yep, that's so, right. Yeah, so you talk about uh, regulatory capture. You know, the banks have taken over the U.S. Treasury and everything to do with money in the federal government. And this had already happened back in this day. Um, Frank A. Vanderlip was the president of the first National City Bank of New York. And that was one of the most uh, powerful banks of the time. And he represented the financial interests of uh, William Rockefeller and the International Bank banking house of Kuhn Loeb and Company. Then there was Henry P. Davison, who was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Benjamin Strong was there. He was head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. Paul Warburg was there. Uh, he's more important than all of the others in terms of putting it together because he was the guy that had the connections in Europe. Uh, he was a partner in the Kuhn Loeb and Company. He also represented the banking uh, fraternity or the the clan you might call it uh, that dominated uh, Europe at the time, France and England in particular. And uh, his brother Max Warburg was uh, Max Warburg was the head of the War Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Now you put all these things together; these guys dominated uh, about you know most of the wealth of the world. And here they were uh, putting together a piece of legislation that's supposed to control the big, bad bankers. Now, w- now when you say most of the wealth in the world, uh, uh, how much money are you talking about? Like comparable to today's money, how wealthy were the Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgan Chase if they were compared to today's wealth? Well, I don't know how to express it in terms of dollars. All I can say is... is Sometimes it's not how much money you actually hold, although they certainly held a tremendous amount of it. And I think 
I think the official estimates of some of the people who were writing about this at the time in the New York Times, I was going through the microfilm and reading all the editorial comments and the letters to the editors from people who had positions of authority, writing and, and expressing their views on this. And I came up with several quotes that I have in my book where these guys were estimating that this consortium that I just mentioned controlled one fourth of the wealth of the entire world. Now that I noticed the word control, that doesn't mean they owned it, but you don't have to own something to control something. And if you, for example, they owned the, the insurance companies. Well, the insurance companies had invested in stocks and a lot of corporations and the insurance companies actually controlled the voting of the stock. So they a big enough block of it anyway, that they could determine who is elected as the president and they could determine the board of directors and all that sort of thing. And they could only ho maybe hold 5% or 3% of the actual of stock of the company, but if you can concentrate that much in a big corporation, it's pretty easy, relatively easy to dominate it. So when you add all of that together, these people controlled one fourth of the world, uh, of the financials of the world, assets of the world at that time. Uh, how many dollars that would be, I have no idea, but it's just unimaginable. And it didn't get it, it hasn't gotten any better since then, I can tell you that. So so once they once they had this meeting at Jekyll Island, they all agreed that they're coming out with the Federal Reserve Act. How was it sold to the American people once they left? Well, it was sold to the American people on the basis that it was for their good. That this at last was a means of uh, controlling the big bad bankers and making sure that the uh, the banks operated honestly, that they weren't going to go bankrupt and uh, people wouldn't lose their deposits in the banks anymore, would all be backed by the good faith uh, and credit of the United States government. And there would be, you know, very trustworthy people overlooking every aspect of the business to make sure there were no inside deals and all that sort of thing. It was sold as the, just a wonderful thing. And uh, th that's the message, at least. That was the, uh, the story. But it's interesting when you get in and see that a lot of that story was coming from the bankers themselves. They had hired, you know, they'd hired published relations firms and they had formed organizations that looked like they were grassroots organizations, but they were formed by people, economists. Sometimes they were professors. Sometimes they were business people, but who all were dependent uh, e economically dependent upon the bankers for their livelihood. And they would go out and form some local group like the Chicago Committee for Banking Reform or something like that. And they'd get some college professor who had a nice grant coming from one of the banks and they would write a pamphlet or give some speeches and say, this is a wonderful thing. This is going to really, this is going to stabilize the economy of America and preserve the savings of the average person. So it was coming from everywhere. But what people didn't know is that the finances for it was all coming from the same source, which was the banking industry. And even some of the bankers went so far as to write articles and give speeches that they knew would be publicized where they criticized the very thing they had created. They had said in a, you know, a couple of speeches that I quote in my book, uh, one guy had said that, that well, you know, this is, this is going to be bad for America. It's, it's, going to, it's going to hurt business if we do this. And, you know, a lot of people read that in the newspaper, and I can just hear it over the breakfast table. Hey, Maud, listen to this. The bankers don't like this Federal Reserve Act very much. Must be pretty good, you know? So they were playing that game. They were playing a brilliant psychological mm. game yeah. of selling this thing. And that's how they got it through. How, how has this, ever since it came out, hurt America? How has it helped? So what's been the positive impact and the negative impact? Well, it sounds extreme, 
to say that I cannot think of any positive impact. But it's true. I cannot think of any positive impact. Any, none. It, none. I cannot think of any because it's a parasite. It's a fraud. It's based on a lie. It's, it's, a, it's a cartel. Now, we have to understand when a cartel is formed, it has only one purpose, and that's to advance the benefit of the members of the cartel, period. Anything beyond that, it, I mean, if you were president or an executive officer of an oil cartel and you started talking about what's good for the people of Venezuela or, or, or you know, Mexico, and maybe we ought to cut our prices and our profit margins so we can benefit the poor people of Mexico, you'd be out of a job in a heartbeat. So the same thing is true with the banking cartel. They have to talk endlessly about stabilizing the economy and, you know, making jobs and and preserving the purchase power of the dollar and all these good things but in their hearts no that's that's just for cover all they're concerned about is what is best for the banks and if you doubt that just take a look at the report card if we were to give the federal reserve system a report card from 1913 on when it was formed supposedly to stabilize the purchasing power of the dollar let's say and to provide you know, all these good benefits for the people. It would, get, it would fail. It'd be at failing marks all the way down. It has never succeeded in doing that. It's, it's led us into a couple of the greatest depressions you can imagine. It's leading us into a huge depression any day now. It's already happening. And the state, the purchasing power of the dollar is, has lost 90, 97% since 1913. It takes, yeah, 97% of the purchasing power of the dollar has been lost since 1913 under the guidance of the Federal Reserve System. How do you come up with that number? How, how, how is that number? When you say 97%, that means it's three cents to a dollar. How, how, do you, how do you come up with that number, 97%? Those numbers come from the Federal Reserve System itself, believe it or not, because there are studies on what, what is inflation, what's the inflationary effect. And they, those numbers are really easy to find, by the way. Uh, it's kind of hard to distort them. They're just hard numbers. What does it cost to buy uh, a pound of hamburger, you know, in 1913 or today? What does it cost for a quart of milk or a gallon of gas? And they, they have these baskets of things. They keep changing it to try and soften the impact. But no matter how often they change it, uh, even in my lifetime, I remember for for a penny, you know, talk about penny candy and those things. For a penny, I could go to a candy store and get a nice big chunk of candy, one that cost me a dollar today, you know, or, or 50 cents for sure. Um, anyway, they, these numbers are uh, readily available. And so uh, if anybody wants to, it, it doubts it, and I don't blame them because it's a harsh figure, look it up. It's, uh, you'll find it easily on the internet. 97% has been, the purchasing power has been eroded uh, since uh, 1913. So um, the Federal Reserve, which is supposed to be the guardian to prevent all of this stuff, gets a, a failing mark on its report card. But now if you understand, as I learned, that that is not the goal of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is not a government agency. It's not formed to protect the people. It's the cartel. It is, it's formed to protect the banks. Now, if you realize that that is their goal and give another report card, man, they get all A's because the banks always get bailed out every time they get into trouble. The banks may fail, but they get the taxpayers to cough up the money somehow, and they're back in business again, doing all their same tricks again. The banks are always making record profits. And so we understand it's a cartel. And on that basis, it gets all straight A's. 
So what what can I guess the part that it goes for me is the following. You have 1913 as Federal Reserve. And then I believe it's August 15th of 71 is when we went away from gold standard. It may be August 18 or August 15 of 71 when we went away from the gold standard during Nixon era. So if you have Federal Reserve, you have gold standard, you have quantitative easing, right? Which is let's print as much money as possible to bail people out. If there's gold standard, can the country keep printing money even though we are on a gold standard? It depends on the standard. Um, they speak of the gold standard that we were on, and it wasn't a pure standard. It was a percentage, a sliding scale. It, uh, I don't think the the currency has ever been on a 100% standard. It's always been partial. Uh, if, it, if it were 100%, in other words, if every dollar that was printed had to be backed 100% by gold or silver, which has never been the case, as I, I'm pretty sure, not in America, then you can't you cannot print any money until that bullion is in the vault. But if the standard is say fifty percent gold, and that's the, called fractional reserve banking, which it always has been, uh, banks are allowed to loan more than they actually have in the vault. And when they do that, they give it a fancy name. They call it uh, fractional reserve. Oh, that makes it under, uh, that makes it okay because now we have a name for it. Uh, that means that uh, they can loan money that they don't have. They, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing deal. And the, the fraction has always gone down. It starts off high. And then almost every year, uh, they have a new law or a new uh, rule or regulation where the fraction can be increased or decreased in this case until finally it's 50% and then 40% and 30, 22%, 5%. And now it's 0%, of course, has been zero for a long time. So when you have no reserves, um, a fractional reserves at all, anything solid behind it, uh, then there's there's no limit to the amount of money you can create. Uh, now it's not as easy as that because it's 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 even worse than creating money out of nothing. They create money out of debt. It's important to know that every dollar in a fiat system like ours comes into existence only when somebody borrows it. This is where the banks come in because remember the banks make their money on interest on loans. So loans are the lifeblood of the banking industry. So anything that gives the bank unlimited inventory of money that they can loan out, they like that. If you restrict their inventory and they can only loan out a little bit because that's the only gold they have, they don't like that because they're losing opportunities to make interest. So the idea has always been from the beginnings to make that reserve requirement as small as possible. And then finally, after you know 1971, it's just gone completely. Now there's no requirement at all. So the banks have unlimited inventory of money that they can loan out. And all they have to do now is convince people to borrow it, which is why they're always sending you stuff through the mail. Wouldn't you like to take out a new credit card? Wouldn't you like to you know, borrow some money on your house? Wouldn't you like to have a new car? They're always trying to promote loans. And then, of course, the big deal is that they go to uh, countries, uh, the third world countries, and say, how would you like a billion dollars to improve your infrastructure? You know, And the, the politicians there think, hmm, billion dollars, that's a lot of money. I could get half of that for my house and my yacht. And the others, we'll build the dam with what's left over. So they go for it. And of course, they can't pay it back. And then the banks knew that in the beginning, they'll never be able to pay it back. So now the banks can move in and start to take over the natural resources of that country as collateral against the loan. They put nothing into it except money that they created by the loan itself. The loan was backed by the natural resources of the country. 
So they can't pay the loan or the interest. Now the banks get access to the natural resources of the country. It's a beautiful deal. I mean, I, when I say beautiful, I mean, it's, it's horrible. But this is how the banking industry has grown and grown and become so powerful in politics and economics all over the world. They literally control countries by putting them into debt. I'm familiar with that. I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Economic Hitman by John Perkins. He wrote the book. I mean, that's pretty much the business model. And that's what China is doing right now with Africa, with a lot of different countries. Uh, uh, they put $15 billion into Armenia, $400 billion into Iran. It's a model that actually works very effectively, by the way, and you, you force them out. But okay, so pre-1913, pre-Federal Reserve, did banks have a limit on how much they could lend out? Yes, there was some limit. And of course, it depended on the state. Uh, remember, prior to, to uh, 1913, the same deal that I'm talking about, the same fractional reserve banking system was in operation. That didn't start in 2000, I mean, uh, rather 1913. That had been in existence long before that. And each state had its own rules and regulations as to what the discounts were and what the ratios, uh, the, you know, the reserve ratios would be and so forth. None of them were very good. And in fact, um, that's the era in which all these banks were going belly up. And so the federal government was called in to fix the problem that had not been fixed by the states themselves. The states were, the states were just as caught in the trap as the federal government later became. Uh, so uh, the problem predated the Federal Reserve System by quite a, quite a bit, by so, a couple so, hundred years. So then that means the Federal Reserve... All it did is it became an, it became an insurance policy to prevent banks from going out of business. Outside of that, what other negative did it do? Well, I think that in itself was negative because it wasn't really insurance. It was uh, it was scam insurance. They just Fake. all they did is say all they did was say, "Look, we'll all join together so that while some banks are failing, maybe the others on this side of the aisle can bail them out." But they never really went into insurance. Uh, they never. Because how would you insure something like that? No, no insurance company that had to show a profit to its stockholders would ever take on that kind of a risk. They called it an insurance company. They called it, you know, the FDIC. But it sure. was really what they were doing is forcing the taxpayers to guarantee the losses of the bank. It wasn't those those premiums were not coming from the banks completely because the 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 FDIC knew that they didn't have adequate funding for it. So that when the day of reckoning came, they would go to the taxpayers and say, okay, we're just going to create more money out of nothing to pay off the insurance. It was not real insurance at all. It was a political scheme. So how have the American people paid a price for the 1913 Federal Reserve Act? What's the, what's the price we've paid? Well, the price we've paid is the loss of 97% of our savings. Anybody that's lived long enough and they put a dollar away back in 1913 and pulled it out of the bank today and tried to spend it, uh, they get about three cents worth of purchasing power. Now, of course, if they had left it in the banks or some investment, it would be overcoming some of that. But in net, in net, they would have lost purchasing power in spite of the interest. And of course, today, there's literally no interest at all worthwhile considering. So it, it's, it's a means of stealing your savings. That's, that's the biggest thing. That's why people are having trouble to retire. It's a disincentive to saving. It's a, people think, well, it's better to go into debt because I can, let's say I buy a house today and I, I'm going to pay, uh, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to owe, uh, let's say, $50,000 in interest. 
And that's what I, that's going to be my cost for the debt, $50,000, but I'm going to take 30 years to pay it off or whatever the numbers are. But by the time I get to year 20 or 30, why uh, those dollars would be pennies. It'll be easy to come by. So I really make out well. So it's a disincentive for people to save money because they know that their savings will be destroyed. And if they go into debt, they'll, they'll do well. So it's kind of, it's a, a dead short across the system against the economy of the system where nobody's working on on assets anymore, it's all on debt. And they don't realize that that means a significant proportion of all of the productivity of whatever venture comes out of that loan, if it's a business venture, it goes to the banks as interest on this money created out of debt, instead of going into the pockets of the people who produce the asset, to build the house or mix the cement uh, or, or design the house and so forth. It gets siphoned off to the um, financial services industry. And this is not productive at all. It hurts in that way. It also hurts and because it hurts because the system eventually falls apart. In history, there's never been a nation or a culture or a geographical system that's followed this, this idea of money out of nothing. There's been no country that's ever survived that. It's always collapsed economically and, and usually concurrently with foreign invasions when they realize that the nation is weak and it's struggling, it's on its knees and some foreign invader comes in and says, aha, this is our moment. Don't think the Chinese are not looking at us with that kind of a thought in mind. But, but you're saying that, you're saying this has never happened in history. Has there ever been a nation that has experienced as much exponential growth from 1913 till today, the amount of wealth that has been made and the amount of technology advancement that America has created due to being able to uh, uh, loan money to innovators that have turned that into business. Yes, we've lost a lot, but we've turned it into a lot of economy and jobs and all this other stuff. When, when in history has this happened where we can look back and say, look what happened to dot, dot, dot. They had their own Federal Reserve. And, and keep this in mind, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here endorsing Federal Reserve. I'm not defending them. All I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you all the arguments of what an opposition would say to see what your response is to that. So one, when has it ever been where an empire as big as America had their own Federal Reserve, where a handful of people went away and made that decision and it eventually fell. And if it fell, why did it fall? And number two, if we didn't have the 1913 Federal Reserve where the lending was taking place with banks for them to make more money, what if that lending didn't take place? Would we have the level of innovation that we've had in the last 107 years? Yeah, those are questions that need to be asked. Um, you're quite right. This is, this is the kinds of arguments that we hear all the time. First time I came across that was uh, shortly after uh, my book was published. I was scared to death because, you know, I, I wrote this book about banking and money and that was not my field. Didn't know anything, didn't know beans about it when I started. And I thought, man, I've, I've made so many mistakes here. I'm sure that once the book is out, I'm going to be crucified by some college professor or some banking president that's going to say, well, you're wrong on this and you're wrong on that. It just, I'm going to be destroyed, but here I go. And so I was nervous about that for, in the months that followed the publication of the book. And then finally, uh, the day happened. I was on tour and I was invited to a radio station back on the East Coast. And I was going to talk about my book, of course. But when I got to the studio, I found out that it was not really me being interviewed, but it was going to be a debate. And uh, on the other side of the debate, there was a college professor from the local college. And he was a, a professor of money and banking. I thought, 
here's my day. This is the day I die. <laughs> and, uh, so I sat down on opposite sides of the table with this guy with the microphone in each side. And uh, so the interviewer asked me to present my case. And I did uh, a condensed version of it probably took me about three minutes to sort of summarize the answer to your questions. What, what's the harm? What, what does this cost us? Why we don't like it and so forth. And I went through all of that. And then he turned over to the college professor and said, what is your comment on that? And it was a long pause and I'm waiting and waiting, waiting and another long, and it, this is what he said. He said, well, everything he says is true, but we're living well, aren't we? And there it was, there it was. That is the only argument I have ever heard coming from the academic field, because everything I said, fortunately, was true. When I say fortunately, I mean, I hadn't made any mistakes um, or serious ones. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it was true because it was so damaging to the economy. So that is the argument that we're, we're living well, aren't we? And of course, the first part of the answer to that question is, no, we're not. Uh, some people are living very well. And people like the professor and people in the banking fraternity and people in commerce who benefit from all this easy loan and who benefit from government grants that come out of this, they do well because they're on the high end of this. But the people at the bottom end of the structure are not doing as well because they're, they're losing their savings. They're losing their purchasing power. The middle class is being pushed down. And these are the unnoticed people. They work harder and harder. They get pay raises every year. Oh, hey, Mary, look, I got a, I got a 5% pay raise. Hooray, hooray. And she says, yeah, but the cost of groceries went up 6% this year. You know, so he was looking at the high end of the social structure, the economic structure. And I'm looking at the whole thing. When you put it all together, we weren't living as well. And the theory behind that is that with all of the business failures and the, and the loss of money and the theft of money from one class to another, that all of these things are worth it so long as the nation as a whole advances in productivity. What if we didn't have any of that? The assumption is that if we didn't steal from everybody, if we didn't lie to them, if, if we take that out of the equation, then we couldn't advance. Somehow we'd be eating meat in a, in a cave. We'd still be cavemen. And I believe that's just the opposite of the truth. Without the, without the drain on the economy that these banks have caused, the short circuit across the hot wires, taking the, the, the profits of productivity out of the hands of people who produce and put it into the hands of people who don't produce, but simply manipulate the money system. I think that has hurt the thing that we want to see. I think, I think our standard of living and all of the things you mentioned would be twice as high without that. So if we only look at one class of society and we only look at the benefit without thinking of the, of the harm that's been done, then we could come up with that conclusion. But when we put the whole thing together and shake it up in a bag and look what's in there, it doesn't look good. It's negative as far as I can see. So what if we didn't do that? You really think America's innovation would be at the levels that we have today, 107 years later? Oh, that's easy. My belief. Now, this we don't know because it's never been tried. No, no, no. Quote: Civilized society has ever tried to get along without this, with this uh, fractional reserve banking. But my belief is that yes, we would be far more advanced than we are now. How? How? Well, because because our our progress might have been uh, slower because money was not so easy. 
but it wouldn't have been the ups and the downs, the booms and the busts. See, we always think about the booms, but we, we forget what happens when the bust happens and people are on the streets and, and asking for food and they're out of a job and so forth. We just think, oh, the prosperity. Yeah, it's the sawtooth. In general, if you back far enough away and don't see the sawtooth in there, it looks like it's going up and it is. But if you get close enough to see the ups and the downs of this progress, I think if we took, if we just lowered the the upside of the saw sawtooth in order to eliminate or decrease the downside of the sawtooth that the the flattened curve, as they like to call it today, would have a steeper ascendancy than the one with all the sawtooth spikes. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to see that. You know, I, I'm in the business world and uh, I'm, a, I'm a math guy and I've been in the financial industry since the day before 9-11. So I'm series 766, 3126 life and health. And if you buy an American funds mutual fund called Investment Company Act of America, it was started, I want to say, in 1934. Okay, if you open up the prospectus from 1934 till today, you will see a rate of return on average of 12% from 1934 till today. Now, for full disclosure, the last time I sold a mutual fund was in uh, September of 2009. So I have not sold a mutual fund since September of 2009. I have to just kind of put that out there. So when you do look at the economy from 34 till today, it has, I mean, that's just not, not the economy. Well, one of the perspectives, a fund. But even if you go to the S&P 500 and you look at an average, you'll see the number 10 or 12% that the market's grown year after year after year after year after. Of course, we've had a crisis. Of course, we've had wars. We've had assassinations. We've had very unfortunate events that's taken place. But, but for you to say that we would be at the same level of innovation and advancements as we are today, if not more, if we didn't lend, I don't see how that's possible because it's kind of like saying the following. In the business world, if you go listen to a uh, Reed Hastings, he is the founder, he's a, a gentleman running uh, Netflix, and you're probably familiar with the name Reed Hastings. He just came out with a book. A lot of these Silicon Valley guys or the entrepreneurs or the venture capital private equity guys will say, when you're starting a company, go raise as much money as possible. Raising money is a form of going into debt. You can either get a loan, which you're not going to get when you're a startup, or you can go say, I'll give you 40% of my company, 30% of my company for $28 million for round one. You know, A, we'll do $10 million. You know, you know this stuff. You, 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 you've read about this. You're familiar with this. So if you don't raise the money, you can't accelerate hiring, technology, office space, advancement, partnerships. You, you just can't make the product as good as you could because you have to make everything cheaper. So I, I look, I sit there and I, I, I see the negative aspects of purchasing power, 97%, which means a dollar is now worth three cents, but that's because of inflation, which they fully have control over. And I fully see that as a big problem. I mean, you heard Powell yesterday say the fact that they're not going to raise the rates until 2023, until inflation goes back to 2%. But to say advancement would be at the same level? I would really want you to dissect that a little bit more. Maybe I'm not getting it because I don't see how advancement would be at the same level if we weren't lending. Well, the assumption there is that we are not lending. I'm not talking about that. I think, I think lending is a very important part uh, of uh, financing 
capital projects and productive projects. I'm not talking about getting rid of loans or anything like that. I'm talking about making the loans realistic and not so easy so that people are more cautious with the loans. So we don't have the busts and the, and the destroyed business ventures quite so often. So we look at the business ventures that succeed. So this is wonderful. But then we, we forget all about those little companies that never succeeded, collapsed because they shouldn't have been loaned. They shouldn't have gotten the money in the first place. They were underfinanced. I think the best, I, I guess the best example of that is the, the housing bubble, the real estate bubble. And we've lived through it a, a couple of times. We're living through it now again, the second time. No question. When you could go and, and you could buy a house. Didn't make any difference whether you were employed or not. Made no difference how much money you earned. Made no difference how expensive. You didn't have to prove that you could pay for that house. You could just go borrow the money. And the banks knew that when the loan finally soured, that they get bailed out by the federal government. So they didn't care whether you whether it was a good loan or not, because they were going to make their money one way or the other. And that's what I'm talking about. If, if there were a real honest system, and then the loans wouldn't be so big and so easy, but they would still be there and they would be more, they'd be restricted to the ventures that have the highest possibility of of succeeding, and we get all of the failures out of that picture, and 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 you've got a reduced, uh, let's say, a portfolio of all the succeeding companies, but you've also got a huge reduction in the failure co uh, companies as well. You put them together. My my solid conviction is that the growth would be slower, but it would be more even, and we would get rid of the booms and the busts, and the end result would be better than what we actually have seen. I think of a book was by, written by Henry Hazlitt, one of the original books that got me thinking as a, as a free market type of a person years ago. Henry Hazlitt wrote a book uh, called Economics in One Lesson. I urge everybody to read that book. And when I first saw the title of that, I thought, this is absurd. How can there be one lesson for something like economics, which is so diverse? So I bought the book. And by the time I got to page seven, I said, by golly, he did it. He got it into one lesson. So I'd like to paraphrase that lesson for you because this, we're talking about that now. Hazlitt said, if I can get this right, when analyzing the merits or the demerits of any economic proposal, we must not consider just the effect of it on one person or group of people for a short period of time but we should look at the effect on all groups of people and all individuals over a long period of time. And that is it. When you, you just look at the good things that happen and forget the bad things, for example, you look at here's somebody that deserves to be helped, but you don't think about all the people that don't deserve to have the money taken out of their pockets so that you can help this one person. Maybe you put those people into poverty. You know, if you put, if you look at all aspects of the equation over a long period of time, it's a whole different story. I think that lesson of economics applies to what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, a, I can, you, like when you're saying honest system, what is really an honest system? Because uh, I'm, I'm, I have kids, I have three kids. I'm not aware of if, if you have kids or you know, yourself, but if you do have kids, you know how kids are. If you tell them you can't do this, you already know what they're going to be doing. If you yep. put certain rules, kids want to break the rules. Uh, and not much is different than adults. You know, if you create certain rules, we have a tendency to want to break rules, right? If you create laws, 
I don't know how many people here have gone 66 miles an hour on a 65 or, you know, even maybe 75 or 85. There's an element of wanting to break the rules a little bit for us where it's going to happen. The only thing when I sit there and I look at America, here's how I see America. And I may be wrong, but this is how I view America. And I'd love to see your take on this. I see if America was an individual, you take all the countries, say the 200 plus countries that we have, if America was an individual, America would be the one that is not comfortable being one of the best, is not comfortable being a top 10, a top 50, is not comfortable just being content and living a regular life. I see America as the individual that says, I want to be the best of the best of the best. I want to, I want to be Michael. I want to be Brady. I want to be Tiger, whoever it is. I want to be the best, right? And if somebody in the world of business wants to be the best, what do they typically do? They're a little bit more aggressive. They're not as conservative. You know, you don't hear a lot of conservative, you know, people that became extremely wealthy. Conservatives are conservatives. You know, they are, they are very good citizens. You want to live around conservatives. You want to live in a community where people are conservatives. But there's an element of risk involved. And I think America took so much risk with this debt that, yes, a price was paid, but also at the end, the level of innovation where you and I are able to sit here. I don't know where you are. I'm in Dallas, Texas, and we're able to do this interview, and we're able to use this little machine that was uh, you know, started by a guy named Steve Jobs and Wozniak uh, uh, in uh, California. I, I, just, I just can't see that innovation part taking place. What I would like to spend some talking about with you is the following, is inflation. How, you know, when you look at business, like you have right now, Trump is going against Biden. Everybody's looking at the tax plans. But Trump is saying he's going to lower his capital gains taxes to 15%. Biden's already publicly said that I got the email from Goldman Sachs that Biden's raising the capital gains to 39.6. Biden's economic plan is going to cost America $5.3 trillion over the next decade. That's the highest ever, 5.3, 5.4. So if American people are sitting there watching that, what is scarier in your eyes? inflation, taxes, or politicians? What concerns you more? <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> I, need I say? <laughs> I'll, I'll reserve that for a moment because I would like to address your previous comment, if Please. I may, um, about uh, when somebody wants to be best, that they tend to be um, overly aggressive. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think, first of all, there are two issues here in my mind. There's there are economic principles and there are ethical principles. And yeah, so they get intertwined, but they, they, they come from different parts of the brain, I think. We all want to be the best. And we're not everybody that cares that much, but we do like to think that we're, we're worthy in some way. And so we try very hard to do our best. So we, we can be proud of ourselves and so that our friends can respect us and all of that. But that doesn't mean that we want to start cheating them or stealing from them, or lying to them, taking advantage of their ignorance, things like that. That's an ethical consideration. And I think what's happened to America is not, it's, it's not because it has the desire to be best or to be very, very good, but because of, well, we fill in the blanks on that. I think it's largely our, our educational system and our media, our, our entertainment system. But that aside, whatever the reason, America has lost its stringent and strict moral ethical principles where now the superheroes in the movies and in the books 
are the anti-heroes, the guys that are tough guys, the ones that don't give a damn. You know, look out, I'm going to be... In other words, the bad guys, as we would have called them when I was a young person, are not the heroes, the ones we look up to. I remember back when I was young, all of the movies and most of the books I read, they the role models were good people. They would never accept profit at the expense of cheating somebody or lying to them. They were good people. In addition to being successful people, it was, a, it was a, in those days we could we could say that yes, yeah, somebody could have a lot of money and still be an honest, a worthy person. Now we've got the idea that well, if you if you've got a lot of money, that means you are an evil person and you probably stole your money. Well, it might be true, but that's uh, the two are not necessarily uh, together. So I just wanted to get that out by saying that I think our problem that you just mentioned is more of, of the decay in the ethical standards of the country, not so much in the economic uh, practices of it. So having said that- uh, Can we stay on that? Can we stay on that? I know I had a follow-up question with you with what's a bigger threat, inflation. Let's stay on that topic if you don't mind uh, uh, yeah. before we move forward. So- when you're saying cheating, moral, all that stuff, uh, uh, okay, f fine, I agree. But I also think that is a byproduct of uh, the way taxes are set up. I think that's a byproduct of how regulation is set up. I think that's a byproduct of how loose money was in 2007 when they were lending money to just about anybody and the loan officers had no kind of uh, things to, uh, you know, uh, have controls or filters, and they were just lending money to anybody, and they didn't care if you were shown any incomes or assets. So it was very, very loose. So there, there becomes a uh, a pendulum in my mind uh, where on one side you have Milton Friedman back here, who he was not much of a fan of too many regulations, this deregulation. Of course, everything's about deregulation, deregulation, deregulation. But he was a fan of laws. And if I don't, re if I do recall, he would talk about how China back in 1984, you know, did had only four major law schools. They had only a couple thousand attorneys who were living in China in a country with a billion plus people. They didn't have a lot of attorneys. They didn't have a lot of lawyers. So I think a part of that is enforcing what is in place and enforcing what is in place is what gets some people to say, I don't know if I want to mess with this. I mean, the, the recent shooting uh, that took place with uh, uh, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where they had to now pay out $12 million, I think that's a great thing because now other cities and states are going to enforce a little bit more training into their police officers to not just walk in and start you know, shooting because you are seeing something as a threat. I think that could be a good thing. I think certain things that are taking place, if they find a shooter in Compton that shot the two cops, I think he needs to get the highest level of punishment for others to say, you just don't shoot cops. Where I'm going with this is the following. Ethics, integrity, all of that is a byproduct of the way rules and regulations are set up today. And if they're set up in a low standard way where we're looking past it, people are going to keep breaking rules. So so for me, I totally agree with you there. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what is the biggest threat of Federal Reserve. And I have something in mind. I'm curious to know if we're going to get end up getting there on this interview. Thoughts? <laughs> well, if I could just comment on that too, but I, I agree with everything you said, by the way. But the idea of whether it's a chicken and egg sort of thing, whether the ethics come from the rules or the rules are formed by people with low ethics, I think they both are true. And uh, I agree with I that. Think, yeah, because if if people like you and I 
hopefully we wouldn't be corrupted by uh, the power that's in our hands. Uh, we wouldn't pass rules like that. I don't care what the society was, was. It's what we carry around inside our heads and our hearts. We wouldn't want to participate in that. But unfortunately, when people are born into a system where everything they're exposed to from their schools to their motion pictures, to their, the songs they hear on the radio are, are glorifying a very low standard of ethics or a different standard anyway, then it's not surprising that the society starts to have rules and regulations that uh, support those. So I don't know, it's, it's a chicken and egg thing and it's bad. And uh, we've got to, I think, reverse that somehow. And uh, I, I do believe that it's a product of this fact that we have bought into this thing called collectivism which means that we we believe that the group is more important than the individual. I don't believe this, by the way, but many people were taught this in school, like I was, that the group is more important than the individual and that everything is a numbers game. If you get 51% of the people to want something, then that's got to be the right thing to do, even if it means plundering the other 49%. And it's, it's a bad system. And we think that everything is political. There are no standards. Truth is what you want it to be. All of these things, you know, oh my gosh, um, it's got to come at the reform, I think, has to start at that ideological level before we can have the rules and regulations reflected. And I think because we have bought into the idea that everything should be measured and controlled by a law, that, that when people are elected to Congress, they have one job, and that's to go to Congress and make laws, more laws, more laws, all day long, pass more laws, till finally we got 100 million, trillion, billions, and zillions of laws, and we have no room to move because it's a law for everything, yeah. including how we how we blow our nose. And uh, and so, and we buy into that because we think each law, oh, it's for the greater good, you know? Yeah. And so once we get to that point, the laws are, oh, they're horrible. They're not for the greater good at all. It's a very good point. Uh, it's a very good point because again, everything goes back to the basics of how you raise a family. If, if a family has too many rules and relationships have too many rules, I mean, you, you miss out on creativity, individualism, you know, having your own thoughts, your own opinions, you know, you know, if you try to control how fully on who your daughter dates, she's eventually going to date who you don't want her to date. If you're so worried about <laughs> what probably do drug, that anyway, <laughs> yeah, she's going to, she's going to do what she's going to, if you're so worried about what your son is going to do and what drugs or alcohol, if you're so like, you try to fully, they're eventually going to be like, why is that so worried about this? So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on uh, what you're saying, but, but let's go back to the next topic here. So what is a bigger concern to you? You've been around, you've researched a lot, you've read a lot and stuff that's pre my era and pre my former generation. You've been, you've been reading a lot of stuff on what's going on, done a lot of research with your 48 books. What do you see as the biggest threat today? You know, is it inflation? Is it taxes? Is it media? Is it politicians? Is it China? What is the biggest threat today that we're facing? That's hard to pick a biggest. I, I would say the biggest threat, if it wasn't even on your list, it's the fact that the population of the world has been denied information so that they are incapable of making good decisions. They're, they look at the world through their television screens or their computer screens they think everything they see in front of that little screen or in that screen, that's reality. They can look out the window and see that it's raining, but if it says on the radio that the sun is shining, they'll say, oh, this, it's a sunny day today. 
And I think that's the scariest thing because as long as the humans in this planet can be programmed and passively accept a condition where they accept authority without question, there is no hope for mankind because authority sooner or later will figure out how to dominate their minds and control them in every way possible. That's a pretty deep answer right there. Um, that, and, and what's the price of that? What is the price of that long-term? Well, the price of that is that we cease being humans. We cease being in the sense humans of our full potential, having uh, freedom, a freedom of will, freedom of choice, freedom of logic to reach a decision or to question, freedom to think even. We become like robots. And of course, that's what a lot of this transhumanism really is all about, is to convert the present state of affairs into two classes of humans. One are the ruling elite, who will remain pretty much as humans always have been, but maybe genetically selected to choose only the best and the, the highest intellects, but the rest of us to be gradually dumbed down chemically, electromagnetically, and through information uh, starvation into robots. That's the, that's the penalty. That's I think, and I shouldn't say I think, I know that's where we're headed because the people that are doing it brag about it. They talk about it. They've written books on it. They think how wonderful it's going to be. And uh, I, at first I thought, well, that's, that's really weird. This will never happen. But now I see AI developing and, and transhumanism and more artificial things happening where people can blend their bodies with mechanical things. And I project that into the future. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, maybe this is really going to be that way after all. Uh, you know, you, you'll see the opposition uh, those who uh, oppose capitalism, they'll go and say, well, Karl Marx was a noble man because, you know, he, he felt the capitalist is so competitive. He's so hardworking. He's so ambitious to seek more money and greed that he's eventually going to create so much wealth and not go out there fishing with his dad, fishing with his kids and spend that quality time with his family. And at the same time, if advancement goes at the level that it does, eventually it's going to destroy itself and implode. What do you say to that part of the argument? Because you're a capitalist yourself. You're pro-capitalism. You're pro-freedom. You're pro-choice. You know, pro-freedom of thinking. You're, you know, all of that. But at the same time, you can. You're concerned about the advancement and the levels we're going with AI. Uh, are we advancing and innovating a little too fast or a little too quickly? Well, there's a couple of components to that question about, you know, the, the general uh, opinion of what Marx really taught. Uh, what you just said has is, is got nothing to do with Marxism, but a lot of students think it does. They think, well, Marx taught, you know, peace and, and uh, cooperation and non-competitiveness and so forth. He did not. Uh, I, when somebody starts talking that way, I know that they have not read Marx. They have read books uh, telling them what Marx means, but they have not read Marx. If you read Marx's books, you'll find out it's got nothing to do with that. It's all about crush your opposition, destroy your opposition, come to power, take away the family, take away money, make, make people uh, obedient to their rulers and masters in the name of the greater good of society. He's, he 
he's he speaks nothing of the things that the students think he is, it represents. And you know, he'll say, "Kill them all," and they make no bones about it. Not only Marx, but Lenin and Stalin, all the good old boys, and and uh, you know, Mao Zedong, all of those guys. Adolf Hitler, really, even though he's a, a Nazi, he believed the same thing. There's no difference between what he believed and what Marx and Engels and and uh, Lenin were teaching. So yeah, when, when people talk that way, I know that they haven't read the books and the, and the manuals that, the, that have been generated by these totalitarians. So having gotten that out of the way, I'll move on to, um, what was that? I thought AI, I AI what, what is your concern? Oh, Are we advancing and innovating too quickly? Well, I, I think we are. I, my only challenge really is the word or the phrase too quickly. I don't think we should move in that direction at all. I think it's, I think it's, whether it's fast or slow, uh, it, I mean, whether you jump off the cliff quickly or sort of slip off of it slowly, you finally you're off the cliff and you're through. So I, I don't think it's a question of too quickly or not. I think it's a question of if we should be doing it or not. And I really, in my mind, I think it's, it's contrary to what we are. I think if we were smart enough to understand who and what we are and where we fit in this universe, we'll be very destructive. First of all, I don't think it'll succeed. I, I really think that we can tinker with the laws of nature only so far to finally we'll blow it up and we won't, we'll cease to exist. We're not going to be these super creatures at all. We will just cease to be able to reproduce or that we'll kill each other or something like that. That's what I, I'm afraid will happen. But uh, maybe maybe nature can be destroyed. Maybe nature can be uh, converted into a, a death machine so that everything just stops. You know, I don't know. Either way, it's a scenario I don't think is a good thing. I don't want to think about that for myself or my children or my great, 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 great grandchildren or anybody uh, in, in the future. So I think if humans really were as smart as they like to think of themselves, they would stand back and say, you know, we don't tinker with the building blocks of life. We just don't tinker with them because they're perfect as they are. They've lasted for hundreds of thousands, if not millions or trillions of years. You can argue over the length of time, but they've, they're pretty good and that they, they show a great deal of intelligence and design and functionality that's far beyond anything that Einstein or any human could come up with. Why are we tinkering with this thing when we think, well, I think all we can do is mess it up. So that's my answer to your question. I don't think it's a question of, are we going too fast? I just think we shouldn't be going there at all. What, where is there? When you say this I, thing or there, what is there or what is this thing? I'm talking about... Uh, AI? No, it's not AI. That's just a computer algorithm. AI is, is fine. I don't see that as a threat. But when we, put, when we implant AI into mechanical devices that are capable of challenging humans or becoming part of humans or replacing humans, now we're in this whole different realm. Uh, I think AI can be very productive and very useful in computer programming and solving problems, but that doesn't mean we have to replace the human instinct and the human uh, senses of morality and make them whatever we program into the AI. If, if, if we want an AI device to think that it's moral to kill people, well, then we just tweak the code a little bit. And all of a sudden, AI says, oh, I've just done a good thing. I've killed 10 people. Hooray for me. You know, this is stupid to go into that kind of stuff, I think. 
it's not about being stupid or not being stupid. It's called point of no return. You can't do nothing about it right now. You, 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 there's nothing the two of us can do about the speed of innovation today. Nothing. Literally, the amount of time it'll take for all the lawmakers and legislators to come out with new laws to prevent this, a new innovation and technology will come out that'll take them another 12 to 24 months to come out with the new regulation. Uh, it, it is the point of no return. One doesn't go without the other. You cannot have a capitalistic society and recognize innovation and individualism, but tell them, well, don't cross the line and pass that limit. You know, the whole idea of limitless, we have no limits that goes with the whole uh, ingenuity, that creativity of a capitalist and an entrepreneur. Can you do it faster? Can you do it better? Can you do it bigger? Can you do it more efficient? Uh, so it, it, you know, it, it's another one of those things where in life, this is what I've learned. Again, I'm only 41 years old and uh, uh, the, the older I get, the more I realize, uh, Mr. G, how many flipping contradictions there are in life. You know, life is filled, of, filled with contradictions. You know, you have one philosophy that gets clear in this area, boom, there's a little bit of a contradiction in it. You, you get this philosophy, boom, there's a little bit of contradiction in it. But in this area, when it does come down to innovation, I, I, I think if all the nice people got together and they all prayed together, I don't think they can slow down innovation or I don't think they can slow down from these young creators to say, I'm not going to stop creating and trying to do it better than whoever did it prior to me. I just don't see that happening. But well, I I'm do afraid, agree with I have you. A, I have a, fra- uh, a fear that you might be right. Uh, it certainly seems yeah. correct that way. But uh, there's one part of it that's encouraging to me, and that is you talk about that this in- innovation and all of this dangerous innovation is a product of capitalism or free enterprise. And I, I, I would like to challenge that because I think most of the money being spent for these kinds of things either are coming from a organizations like DARPA, you know, the military research or governments of one kind, because they're, they're not really doing this in order to make a profit. They're doing this because they intend to control human beings. And so the motivation is you not- really believe that? You really believe that? You really believe that? Oh, oh I, I'm totally convinced of that. Uh, I, I would probably have to do some research to get some numbers together on it. But I think what you would find if you trace the money that's going into this kind of research, that it's almost all of it has its origins from governments. And uh, very, yeah, there's some companies that invest in it, but take a look at the companies, where are they getting their money? Who's paying them? Who's giving them the contracts to do it and so forth. And I think you would be surprised to find that much, most of it is probably coming from governments and they don't care about you know, the human condition. That's not why they're doing it. They wanna do it because they want to create a system what they can control the human being and uh, and not be worried about being facing a revolution or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I understand what you're saying and I think some of that could apply to Iran or to China or to North Korea or to some regimes who fully try to control their people. And don't get me wrong. I am very aware of some of these places in Alaska, where they're creating technology to learn how to control people. I'm, I've read uh, many of these articles and I've gone to some, uh, uh, you know, uh, rabbit holes that you can find yourself staying in for a few weeks and you come out thinking you're living in La La Land or you're on shrooms or smoking some of the best hash from the Middle East. But, uh, you know, and then you realize, no, there's some of this stuff that's actually true and it is kind of happening. But how, how much of it is it to control the people in a free speech country? 
and how much of it is to prevent from a country like China to try to take over and impose their belief system of total control and you know 100% submission to the way the government runs maybe it's preventing from a country like China to become the biggest empire by 2025 where they can't rule the world you know and and that that's the part of it and you know at the end of the day one of the things that i believe in here's what i fully believe in this is what i fully believe in and you have the wisdom i'm still a baby next to you i'm still learning this is why i'm still reading books to get myself to get sharper and wiser and talk to people like yourself so i can elevate my level of thinking i just believe in human beings it's that simple for me i believe in human beings having dreams having heart caring for people because one of the greatest system god created is even if you didn't care about people when you have kids you go through this process of wanting to treat others better because you hope somebody else treats your daughter better you hope somebody returns it to you natural form of karma whether you believe in god or not i just believe in human beings and i think long term I'm banking on human beings having the collective courage to fight for their individual dreams and not be pansies, not be afraid, not be cowards. That's what I'm banking on. I like that message a lot better than your former one where you thought it was too late for anybody to do anything about it. <laughs> I think Well, well no, you know, what I said of, is I said my brain Half of my brain supports one argument and the other half supports the other one. But my heart is totally on the side of your last uh, statement. Yeah, I think. And the key to that is that as long as we are humans, as long as they don't mess us up and prevent us from procreating other human beings, which they're they're definitely working on that. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're putting stuff in our air, in our drinking water, in our food to cut down not only the quantity of our procreation, our reproductive rates, but the quality of it as well. They want to tinker with our, our, uh, ge our genetic structure as well. And if we, if we don't stop that, I mean, the, uh, we're not going to be humans or our great, great grandchildren. We're not going to be humans anymore. You're going in a different direction now. Now we're talking vaccine. Now we're talking vitamin B17. Now we're talking a whole different slew of things that we can get into and this thing can get into three hours. Uh, but I think we may want to leave that for a part two discussion where the two of us can have because uh, uh, today's topic's been very deep. It's been very deep. It's been very interesting. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, your uh, point of view on the way you've uh, uh, shared your experiences and perspective, it's great to hear. Uh, and I hope the audience goes and orders your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. If you've never read it, it's a must. Uh, 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 we're going to put the link below to, to the book as well. And Mr. G, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to do a uh, speed round with you. I'll give you a name of an individual. I want you to tell me one word that comes to mind, okay? Speed round. Give you this a name. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. <laughs> I'll be very honest with you. I want to be very transparent. This can be very dangerous here. So J.P. Morgan Chase. Evil. Uh, Greenspan. Poor chap. Paul Volcker. Evil. Uh, uh, Powell. Poor chap. Um, that maybe I gotta come up with more uh, more words to say the same thing as that. Um, I feel sorry for him. Nixon. Justice. 
Okay. Woodrow Wilson. Fool. Jimmy Carter. Untrustworthy. Wow. Biden. Puppet. Ron Paul. Hero. Bernanke. Evil. Bloomberg. Hack. Pelosi. Puppet. Obama. Puppet. Trump. Puppet. Puppet. That's right. I feel like we're about to dedicate a song. I'm your puppet. <laughs> if you remember that one song, you know, it's I know. Uh, a lot of people are going to say, well, I was with Griffin all the way to that one, but this is really <laughs> <funny>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, uh, but you know, at least you're, uh, uh, at least you're consistent, you know, well, because tried you, you be, just yeah. threw, threw the, uh, the audience off a little bit because it was a little bit, uh, interesting. So you, so you say both Trump and Obama and all of them are puppets, including Biden. So who are the ones at the top that are moving all the puppets, if they are the puppets? Well, we started off talking about them. Okay, got those it. Are, that's the financial. That's the financial world. Who are they today, by the way? Who are those people today? Well, you know, the names, I don't really pay much attention to the individual names. But we know what dynasties they are. We know that the, the two big ones, of course, are the Rothschilds in Europe and the Rockefellers in North America and all of the, all of the people that, that play up to them and so, you know, are in their entourage, all the banks. Then you get into the, the banking families. I'm sure they're still active, but the, the main center is the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. It's as simple as that. And, but there are a lot of other people. I mean, I'm not talking about two people sitting there sure. at the sure. at the control panel making all the decisions. They're, those are the guys that have all kinds of lieutenants and their handler. I mean, people that they sent out to handle. Like take Kissinger, for example. Kissinger is the bag man for the Rockefellers. When Kissinger shows up, you know that he's speaking for the Rockefeller uh, group. And uh, it's not Kissinger speaking, it's the Rockefellers. So, and then and Kissinger has his people that represent him. And there's a whole pyramidal structure. I don't pretend to know all the names and how they fit, but I recognize them when I hear them talk. I'll give you the final words here to the viewer that's watching this. They're a little bit concerned. Uh, they're, they're wanting to go and do a little research. You made a recommendation of a book I read, I don't know, 16 years ago, 17 years ago, economics and one lesson. It's a real thin book. We'll put the link to that book below as well. But what would be your final thoughts to a viewer that's watching this saying, well, um, I want to be more informed. I don't want to be controlled. I want to be a free thinker. What should I be doing? What message do you have for them? Well, I think the first step that a, such a person has already taken, when a person says, I want to be more informed, I don't want to be fooled anymore, they've already taken a huge step because that means they understand that there's something wrong and they're not getting the full information. So the next step is then, well, how, how am I going to get that information? And that's a direct lead, and I'm glad you gave it to me because uh, I would uh, like to plug my upcoming event called the Red Pill Expo. It's coming up in October uh, 10 and 11 on Jekyll Island, by the way. And the Red Pill Expo 
sponsored by Red Pill University, is all about what you just said. It's where do you get information? Where do you take these red pills, which are going to wake you up and cause you to see reality and get rid of all of those illusions that cloud our brains? And believe me, we've all got them. I'm sure I still have some. A lot of them probably. I don't even know about it. Hardly a week goes by, but what I don't discover, oh my gosh, they're fooling me on that one too. Uh, they're all over the place. And some of them are, of course, more, more important than others. So if anybody wants to get a, a place to start, go to uh, redpillexpo.org and look up that event. I think they're going to be very impressed by what's going on there. We're going to put that link below as well. Uh, Mr. G. Edward Griffin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed the conversation. And hopefully, we'll have you back here soon. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I hope. I haven't bored anybody or scared anybody or insulted too many people. And I'd love to come back. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I'm curious, did this interview of uh, the author of Creature from Jekyll Island, does he have you thinking? Are you thinking about the conversations that we had? Comment below what you are still thinking about. But if the topic of economics and what he and I spoke about today intrigues you, I have two other interviews I want you to watch. One is with a a uh, former economist, somebody that used to be with Goldman Sachs, Nomi Prince. If you've never seen this before, we talked about Jekyll Island and Federal Reserve. And if you've never seen my interview with Daniel DiMartino Booth, who was with the Federal Reserve of Dallas for nine years, click over here. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.